Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness to us, and we thank you for another day that you have given. And as we have the opportunity to come together again and to look at, again, some important topics as we seek to understand ourselves and how you have made us and yourself and what you are like, as we uh, seek to understand the foundation principles behind disease and health, we ask for you to be our teacher, draw close to us, May we draw close to you. And uh, Lord, at this time, may we open our hearts to you and your messages and your word for us that we may experience all of the health, healing, and happiness that you have designed for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, with all that we have looked at so far, we can ask ourselves a question and it's a sometimes a hard question to ask, and that is, who can hurt me? Okay. Well, from an emotional and a spiritual standpoint, no one can hurt me. Only I can hurt myself. Okay. Only I can hurt myself. You see, it's only I that can breathe for myself. You can't breathe for me. It's only I can that it can eat for myself. You can't eat for me, and I can only I can drink for myself. You can't drink for me. If I'm thirsty and you take a drink, thank you, but that won't help me. <laughs> It'll be inspiring, but only I can think for myself. You can't think for me, and it's only my breathing, my eating, and my drinking that affects my health, my body, my my outcomes, right? And it's true also that it's only my thinking, not what you think, that impacts my health, my body, and so on. But it is only as your thinking becomes my thinking that your thinking then impacts it, but it's only as it becomes mine. Only as I eat from your buffet, only as I take it as my own. So somebody else might provide a hurtful environment. They might say words, they might do things, they might whatever, and that hurtful environment is there, but remember, God's buffet of love is still there. It never goes away. It's always there, it's always available, and we have a choice where we can choose to consume from. And it's our choice of where we consume from, it's our choice of which environment we take from that determines then our outcome. Now, we have the tendency to blame others for how we end up in circumstances and situations, but the reality is, uh, whatever they might be like, if I get caught up in it, it's because I've chosen to do so. Right? I've chosen to take from what they have. And it's my option, it's my choice to either think on that hurtful environment or the love of God, and that decision of what I choose to think upon really affects my outcome. For example, Martha. Martha, she was married to Herb for 35 years. They had a pretty good marriage. He was a traveling salesman, so he was gone during the week, home on the weekends. They never had children together, but, you know, he cared for her, and she didn't have to work, and she, um, you know, and they had a pretty good marriage. And that is that uh, everything was going along well until Martha found out. Well, what did Martha find out? Well, Martha found out that Herb was not exactly being faithful to her. 
In fact, she found out that Herb had not been faithful to her the entire 35 years. In fact, she found out that she was wife number two. And he had another wife with children, another marriage, and another town. And she would be with them during the week and with her on the weekends. For 35 years! Well, you can imagine that life at that point was not so good. Um, it's probably hard to get to sleep at night thinking, you know, you got all this stuff running through your head. She doesn't have any career skills. She's been at home, you know, all of her life. What is she going to do? How is the situation going to run? She doesn't have any adult children that she can move in with. Parents, she's already older in age. Parents are already gone and, and, and so on. How is this life going to turn out? And so insomnia becomes an issue. And so she's, <clears throat> she's, um, you know, she's dealing with those issues, and then, uh, so then there's sleeping medication, and then she starts developing pain syndromes, and then she starts developing autoimmune condition, and then that starts uh, eating away at the organs, and so on, and she's, at three years later, she's seen multiple specialists, her health is just going down the drain. What's the cause for Martha's decline? Well, the cause for her decline is not directly Herb's infidelity. Right? Now, that's an influence in it, mind you, right? But it's her thinking about his infidelity. Because he had been unfaithful for the whole 35 years and she'd been fine. But it wasn't until she found out, until she discovered, until it became her own thinking, that it then began to impact her own body, and everything began to deteriorate at that point, right? Now, am I saying that Herb should be, Herb should be off the hook and, you know, has no responsibility or anything like that? No, not at all. Um, her very much has a responsibility and individuals have a responsibility for the influence that they have. And he definitely has an influence and it's not a good influence. And so uh, we can leave him in God's hands for the results of that. But from Martha's standpoint, her decline is not Herb. Her decline is her, <laughs> Right? It's her thinking about what has happened there. You see, she's thinking, it's mine. He's mine. Uh, it belongs to me. Uh, remember, which heart does that come from? Yeah, that comes from the old heart, the, the selfish heart, um, and, 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 and so on. Uh, could she be grateful? There's a lot to be grateful for. Not grateful because this necessarily happened or what had happened or, or, or so on and so forth. But we're told in the Bible, Paul tells us, in how many things give thanks? In all things give thanks. Why do we give thanks in all things? Because in all things there is always something to give thanks for. Because God is always present in all things. His buffet of love is always available in all circumstances and situations. His promises are always true in all circumstances and situations and things that we find our lives in, just like Frank was talking about this morning. It's, we, there is always something to give thanks for, to be grateful for, whatever the situation or the circumstance is. And if her 
She could be thankful for God's support. She didn't have to work all of those years. She had a a fairly good marriage. She could be thankful for the good weekends that they had together and, and so on and so forth. There are aspects that she could be thankful for. And if she was thankful and that was her response to the situation, what kind of health would she be experiencing now three years after the discovery? I guarantee you it'd be different. It'd be better than what it is currently. You see, it's not what happens to you, but it's what you think about what happens to you that causes the problem, right? It's not what happens to you, it's what you think about what happens to you that causes the problem, and, and, you know, I deliver this series to the guests at the Lifestyle Center, and, and sometimes we get to this point in the series, and, and, and sometimes somebody gets bold enough and they raise their hand, and, you know, everybody comes to us pretty much with some kind of disease. <clears throat> and, and I've gotten this question before. They raise their hand, they say, do you mean to tell me that it's my fault? Because they're starting to draw the connections. You know, they're seeing the correlations there. Do you mean to tell me that it's my fault? And when that question came, praise God for giving wisdom at the time, (laughs) I asked another question. I said, if it was their fault, what could you do about it? If it was their fault, what could you do about it? If your sickness is because of their unfaithfulness or their whatever, can you fix them so that they become faithful so that now you can get better? No, you can't. So if it is your issue, then that's a good thing because now you and God can work on that. And there's hope for healing. But if the blame resides with them, we have no hope to heal because we have no way of controlling them and fixing them and making them better. So praise God, the problem resides here because because now there's hope with God to fix the problem. So when we give the gift of time, of love, or concern, or care, we can remember we're just the UPS delivery guy. We're delivering God's resources. We're delivering God's love. We're we're, we're delivering his stuff because he's the source that we come to. And if I'm rejected, it's not me who's rejected because I'm God's and he's the one that's rejected. And if the gift is destroyed, it's not my gift that just destroyed. It's his gift. And if the car is stolen, it's not my car. It's his car. Maybe he knows the other guy needs it more than I do. Maybe he knows I need a little bit more exercise than, maybe he knows that that car had become an idol in my life and it was time for the idol to go bye-bye. I don't know. Speaking of a car being stolen, you see, you and I have the owner problem, (laughs) right? We have an owner problem. We think we're the owner, not the steward. If you had a, if you were the steward of a multimillionaire, and you had the, the stewardship of the Lamborghinis, right? 
So maybe they have a, a different colored Lamborghini for every day of the week or something like that. I've, I've seen a picture of, well, let's say it's the Rolls Royces or whatever. I've seen a picture of a, you know, one of those Middle Eastern sheiks or whatever, and, and, and he has a different colored Rolls Royce for every outfit that he wears. And, um, you know, so that he matches his car and everything. And, of course, each of those cars costs, I don't know, several hundred thousand dollars. And so let's just say that you work for the Sheik and, and, and you're the, the steward of the Rolls Royces and you've got the yellow one and the green one and the blue one and the purple one and the black one and the white one and, the, you know, and all of those different ones. And, and you're the one that helps to take care of those. And, yes, you can drive them and fuel them and clean them and do all sorts of things like that with them and chauffeur around and whatever. But the Sheik one day decides that he doesn't like yellow anymore and so he gets rid of the yellow Lamborghini I mean the yellow uh, um, Rolls Royce right are you going to get all upset at the chic for for letting the yellow Rolls Royce go no it's not yours right that's not yours but when it's your Toyota Corolla how upset do you get Yeah, plenty. Why? Because it's yours. But, oh, is it? Or do we just think it is? Right? I mean, what did God say? God says, all of the gold and the silver is mine. With whose gold and silver did you buy the thing with? With his. He says, all of it is mine. Right? Right? It was his resources that you used to get the thing in the first place, and he gave it to you not so that you could be selfish and hoard it to yourself, but so that you could use it in ministry and and so on and so forth. You're only the steward of all of these resources, but we think that we're the owner. And when we think that we're the owner, when the the thing doesn't go well or somebody else comes along and takes it or they scratch it with their key or they, you know, do other sorts of things like that, we get all up in a tizzy because of that, because it's mine. And we do the same thing with relationships. We think they're mine. And so when they're mine, when things don't work the way that they're supposed to work, oh, we get all caught up and we, just like the car getting stolen. We get all wrapped up in it. And we take it personally. And that's exactly what God wants to save us from. Not that we are not interested in other individuals, but we're not interested in them for our sake. We're interested in them for their sake because he loves them and because he cares for them. You see, we take all sorts of things personally. Let me ask you this. You have a cat, and the cat's walking along on the table, and it, and it, and it bumps into the cup, knocks it over. Now there's water all over the table. Why is it that it's water all over the table? Okay, so cap bumped into the cup and knocked it over. All right, so you're walking along, you you bump into the table and accidentally knock it, and the cup's sitting there and it spills over, and and coffee spills out all over the table. Why is it that there's coffee all over the table? <clears throat> all right. We're getting some different answers. All right, so an earthquake comes along, and the cup, cup knocks over, and and uh, milk comes spilling all over the table. How come it's milk that's all over the table? All right. 
Yeah, we're getting a little more unsure. So you're, you're walking along and you, you, you trip on, a, on a, you know, a little snag in the carpet or something like that and, and, and this cup falls out of your hand and, and lands on the ground and now there's non-alcoholic wine all over, the, all over your white carpet. Why is it that there's non-alcoholic wine on the carpet? <laughs> all right. Well, human nature would say that, that in these scenarios, well, it's water on the table because the cat knocked it over. It's coffee on the table because you bumped into the table. It's milk on the table because the earthquake shook the whole thing. And the last one, you'd say, well, there's wine on the, on the floor because you tripped. But what if all of the glasses were empty? What would be on the table or the floor? Just the cup, Right? You see, what comes out comes out because that's what was in there, right? What comes out comes out because that's what was in there. And the same thing is true for human beings. It's all true for us as well. You see, if someone says something to you that is hurtful, it's, it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with them because it couldn't come out of them if it were not in them, right? It could not come out of them if it were not in them. So just like the cup that spilled over, it doesn't matter what spilled the cup over, what comes out of it comes out of it because that's what is in it, because that's what's in it. And the same thing is true of people. It doesn't matter what triggers them to say what they do or to act the way that they do. Whatever comes out of them comes out of them because that's what's in them, right? Jesus put it this way. He said, said, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? He says, you're not defiled by what goes in. You're defiled by what comes out, right? Because it comes out of the heart, What's in the heart comes out. Solomon put it this way in Proverbs 4.23. says, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Same concept, same idea. And so what the Bible is telling us is that what someone else says or what someone else does, it's not about us, it's about them, because it couldn't come out of them if it were not in them. Yet it would behoove us to listen to what they're saying and do some self-examination with God to see if there might be some truth associated with what they're saying. But don't take the spirit of it, don't take the frustration of it, don't take the whatever of it and just eat off of their buffet. Because when you do, you become exactly like them because you are what you are eat, right? And if they get frustrated, you get frustrated. They get angry, you get angry. They're really excited, you get really excited, and so on and so forth. You see it happening all the time in relationships. Why? Because we're taking from each other. Jesus was never elated by applause, nor dejected by censure, nor disappointment, because he always took from his father's buffet, and not others around him. So you've heard this phrase, you know, you, uh, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will, will never hurt me. Uh, there's the other one, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will crush my soul. 
So which one's true? I grew up with the first phrase, and then I learned the second one, and I thought, oh, that's really cool, and that's, that's right, and whatever. And now that I look at it from the Bible standpoint, I realize, well, the first one is true, and the second one's true. It just depends on which buffet you're eating from. If I'm eating from the Father's buffet, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me because his words are never bad. <laughs> They're always good. And if I'm taking from his words, it's always good, regardless of what somebody else is saying, because I don't believe what they say, I believe what he says. But if I'm taking from their buffet, then words can crush my soul because I believe what they say. And I believe the lies that comes from there. You don't have to take it. But the opposite is always just exactly as true. That is, it doesn't matter what somebody says, it doesn't matter what they did, it doesn't matter how they say it, it doesn't matter how they do it, how you respond has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with you because it couldn't come out of you if it weren't in you. It couldn't come out of you if it weren't in you. So if you're in a situation where you're getting frustrated, where you're getting riled up, where you're getting whatever, where you're getting, uh, um, uh, what should I say, you're getting uh, depressed and, and all of that kind of stuff with what's going on, it's coming out because it's, it's in there. Right? And remember, we're so crazy, and Frank was talking about this in, in a way, uh, this whole paradox Right? The paradox simply reveals to us the fact that we're crazy and that we are upside down and we see everything backwards because it seems paradoxical to us when God reveals to us the principles of his kingdom and how it works because it's just so opposite to how we live and what we understand. But it just reveals that we're crazy and God has a difficulty in trying to convince us that we are crazy. So how is God going to convince us that we're crazy? Well, we already mentioned, he cannot just tell us that we're crazy because we won't believe him. Just like a, a counselor can't counsel somebody who is in psychosis to, to convince them that their psychosis is a psychosis and not reality. I just had a call this morning from a friend, and they're concerned about a relative because the relative, the news anchor is cursing at them and giving them messages through the television and then sending people to their home in order to do bad stuff to them. Now, do you think the news anchor is really doing that? Cursing at them through the TV and then sending individuals to their home specifically to do bad things to them? No, they have an alternate reality. But if anybody tries to convince them that that is not true, guess what? They're not gonna believe it, right? They're not going to believe it because they are absolutely convinced their reality is real, but it's not. The same thing with us. And so what tool does God have? God has the tool of demonstration to demonstrate what's there so that we can see it. So by the love and the grace of God, he allows our cup to get spilled over again and again and again, so that what is inside comes out, so that we can see it and know how crazy we are, and then come to a God who can fix the craziness. 
By his love, he allows these things to come. By test and trial. It's in test and trial that the cup gets spilled over. So, so don't ignore what's coming out in those times. Pay attention to what's coming out at those times because that reveals what is in the heart. And that is the issues that still remain that God and I need to work on so that I can be more and more like him. Right? It's by his grace that that happens. Now, with the craziness... We have this statement, sickness of the mind prevails everywhere. (laughs) Where? Everywhere. We're all crazy, right? We're all crazy. Sickness of the mind prevails everywhere, and nine-tenths of the diseases from which men suffer have their foundation here. The craziness converts into disease in many cases. And nine-tenths out of, nine out of ten, 90% of the time, the cause of the disease comes from the craziness. Because we were created in the image of God to think like God thinks. And the craziness causes us to think differently. Just like Frank pointed out in Isaiah 55, in verses eight and nine. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. Right? As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You don't think like I do, is what God is saying. You're crazy. But guess what? He's crazy about us, right? He's crazy about us. So much so that he came to become one of us. Ah, oh, Beautiful. Wish I had more time for that. All right, let's dive into love relationships one last time before we get into this whole topic of what do we do about it? What do we practically do about this? Let's look at love relationships. There are two legitimate love relationships that God has created us for, and these are functions of the heart. The one relationship is the relationship from which we take, and the other one is the relationship to which we give. Hmm. And God has created us in such a way that we are to take in order to give. Right? We are to take in order to give. That's how we're created to do. We, might, we don't have anything of our own. We're not the creator and so on. So we must come and have something first in order to then give it away. Again, remember that the enemy is not a creator. He can only rearrange what God has already created and put in place, and so this, the enemy comes along, and he just turns this thing backwards, and he says, ah, loving is giving in order to take, or giving in order to receive. Now, when you put the batteries in the right way, the thing functions, but when you put the batteries in backwards, mm, it either doesn't function or there's chaos. So, divine love takes to give Sin or human love gives in order to take or gives in order to receive. And to do things the way God designed for it to be done brings life. But to do it backwards brings death, right? Hmm. And that we see as sin. Now, why is it that God wrote the Ten Commandments on two tables of stone? You know, when I was younger, I, I thought it was just because you had a big finger. You know, and it, it 
I wasn't thinking of this whole thing that, you know, he created the atoms and the and the anatomic and the atomic particles and the subatomic particles and you know all that kind of stuff i didn't i wasn't catching in my mind that you know all of these really small intricate things god created as well you know um i was just thinking he had a big finger and so he just couldn't get it all onto one you know one stone but no there was a purpose that he had the commandments on two on two tables of stone because each table of stone is, uh, is the law that governs the function of each love, right? The, the one stone has the laws that govern the function of the taking love, and the other stone governs the, is the law that governs the function of the giving love, right? And the first four commandments, the taking ones, are exclusive, whereas the last six are inclusive. Well, what do I mean? Well, the first commandment says that there's how many gods? One. One and only one. So that excludes all others. Right? And, and the second commandment tells us that uh, we are to worship how many? One. And so that excludes the worship of all others. And the third commandment says that we are to hold up and respect in our lives in the first place how many? One. And it excludes all others from that first place. And the fourth commandment tells us that God has specifically set aside how many days for us to worship him on. One. One. And it excludes all others, right? Um, So in essence, what this first table of commandments is telling us is that there is only one source. And that one source is God. So only take from here. Right? Only take from here. Because it's the only source. Right? Now, the fifth commandment tells us we are to do what to our parents? Honor them. Is honor taking or is it giving? It's giving, right? We are to give honor to our parents. Now, what is the characteristics of our parents that are listed that determine whether we honor them or not. All right, so love is the underlying factor um, behind that. But the commandment gives us no characteristics for the parents that determine whether we honor them or not. Right? It doesn't say honor them if they are honorable. Honor them because they take good care of you. Honor them because of this, that, or the other thing. It is simply the fact that they are your parents, you are to honor them. Who in this planet is typically the hardest honor? <laughs> Your parents, right? Because you know them. <laughs> you grew up with them. You inherited their defects of character. <clears throat> and you mimic their defects of character. And you see all sorts of stuff happening in your parents. And, of course, God could have chosen some other relationship to represent this, but he could have said brother and sister, but not everybody has a brother and sister. He, he could have said a child, but not everybody actually has a child. So he chose a relationship that everybody has. Everybody has parents, whether they're dead or not, right? Um, but everybody has had parents. So he chooses that one, and it's typically the hardest one to abide by. <laughs> Honor 
your parents. So it doesn't matter what they're like. It doesn't matter how they respond. It doesn't matter how they raised you. It doesn't matter how they treated you. You are to give them honor. Why do you give them honor? Because you took from the only source, which is God, who is honorable. And you give away what you took, regardless of what they're like, right? It's an inclusive law, meaning that it doesn't exclude anyone from the giving. The sixth commandment says, oh, don't take life from here. The seventh commandment says, don't take intimacy from here. The eighth commandment says, don't take stuff from here. The ninth commandment says, don't take reputation or truth from here. And the tenth commandment says, don't even think about taking from here. Do not take from here. This is where you give, not where you take, right? That's what the commandments are telling us here. So there's only one source, that is God, take from him. Everyone else is not there for you to take from, they're there for you to give to, regardless of what they're like. That's the love that is governed by the law of God. Right? That's the love that's governed by the law of God. The one that you take from, you are dependent upon, but the one that you give to, you are independent of. <clears throat> the one you give to, you are independent of. So how can we illustrate that? Well, let's take a beautiful scene a nice mountain scene with a river, and let's say that you are looking for uh, new property. You're looking for country property. Maybe you're looking for wilderness property. You're gonna be so far off, you're, out of the, you're off the grid and everything else like that. And you go looking, and you find this nice valley at the bottom of the mountains and so on, and there's a farmhouse up there and a property. There's one in the middle, and there's one downstream, and the one in the middle, woohoo, it's for sale. And it's just the right price. And you look there and you take, you take a look at the property. The, the building is nice. It has good agriculture land. The water of the river is just nice and beautiful and it's clean. You can actually drink it. And there's enough water power and enough grade on the land that you can have hydroelectric power. Plus you can have enough water to run your shower on the second floor of the house and to water all of your garden and everything else like that. Perfect. You buy the property. And uh, you're enjoying time there. You plant a few trees next to the river. Eventually hang your hammock next to it as well. You can enjoy some of that too. And, um, and one day the neighbor downstream, they decide that they're going to start an industry. And so they build this factory. And the factory, in part of the processing, they suck all this water out of the stream, uh, the river, into their factory, and they dump this stuff, this blackish stuff out there and kind of pollute the rest of it on downstream. Now, does that directly affect you? No, it doesn't directly affect you because they are downstream. That's right, they're downstream. So that doesn't directly affect you. So are you... <clears throat> do you have to do something about it? No. Are you dependent upon them? No. 
because you already got everything you need. All the water and everything that you need, it already came through, it already passed through, went on down to the next. Whatever they do with what came out of your property on the other side, they're free to do with it. Now, if the law says that they can't, well, then the law can take care of that. But as far as you're concerned, you already got everything you need, it goes on. But what happens if the neighbor upstream gets the same idea and does the same thing? Oh, and all you have is a little polluted water and it's trickling along and your plants are dying and you're turning green and you're, you know, there's not enough water power to, to run the shower upstairs and, and so on and so forth. You need to do something about it now? Yeah, does that directly affect you? Yeah, why? Because they are upstream. That's right. They're upstream. They control your source, so you're dependent upon them, and what they do directly affects you. If they're the one you take from, if they're upstream from you, if they're your source, you're dependent upon them. Right? You see? Right. But if they're the one you give to, if they're downstream from you, if they're not your source... You're independent, upon, you're independent of them, and what they do doesn't affect and control you. Hmm. So we find ourselves in a situation where our parents are over here, our families over here, our spouses are over here, our friends are over here, our coworkers are over here, our pets are over here. They're all over on the taking side. They're not over on the giving side. And all of the relationships are messed up because they're backwards. How do you know that, thing, that they're on the taking side? Well, they frustrate you. They make you upset. You're hurt by the things they say and do. And you feel controlled by them, and in return you attempt in ways to control them. All of those are evidences that they're on the taking side. They're your source. Right? You have to control the source that you cannot trust, and you know you can't trust anyone. And so you must control them to one degree or another, either from the good or from the bad. And so <clears throat> that comes into play here. Anybody ever felt this way? This sound familiar at all? Right? If it's not familiar, just go to a family reunion. You want to know how well you have progressed in the Christian life? Just go back to a family reunion and see what happens. Do you revert to what you were 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 10 years ago, and just react the same way around the same people? We must then ask ourselves, have we changed at all? Right? There are ways that we can change, but <clears throat> it must eventually hit home. <laughs> it must eventually hit home. God never intended for others to be our source. Conduit, yes. God does reveal his love to us through others, but they are not the source. 
And so we are told that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of heavenly lights with whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. So if every good gift and every perfect gift comes to us from above, but yet we receive a good gift or a perfect gift from somebody else, then where did it come from? It came from God through them manifested to us. So does the thanks go to them or does it go to him? It goes to him, right? It goes to him because he's the source. Our dependency, is it upon them? No, it's upon him because he's the source. We can be grateful for the channel as well, right? And we can give thanks to the one who allowed God to work through them But ultimately, we recognize that it is God who is the source, and when we recognize that God is the source, we don't become dependent upon the channels through which the source comes through. We become dependent upon him. And in our lives, we have it backwards. We have other people upstream from us, and thus we're dependent upon them. Even while we have God downstream from us, and what he says or does doesn't really affect us. Isn't that how it is? God says, do this, and we decided, nah, we'll do that. God says, don't do that, and we say, well, no, I'm going to do that. (laughs) Ever been in that situation? Yeah, it's called sin, right? Yeah, what God says is downstream. It doesn't really affect us. But what others say, oh, my if, if, if they start getting upset or they start doing this, or other, we really start worrying and we start changing how we, you know, and so on. Why? Because they're upstream. That's, and, and when that is the case, then the law of God is broken in our lives. The intention of God for us is not there, right? Through the sacrifice that he made on the cross, Jesus takes this old heart of sin that giving in order to take or giving to receive that leads to death, he takes that in himself. This old heart that is at enmity with God and is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. And in himself, he puts it to death. He puts it to death that he might leave behind that which he created us for in the first place, the new heart, the new heart of divine love, of taking to give. And in doing so, God does not wipe out the law. In doing so, God upholds the law, restores the law, the function of the law that governs love, right? We're told in Jeremiah 31, 33, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. It's not a wiping out of the law. It's a restoring of the law and its proper function in our lives. And when that happens, there is a restoration of relationship as well. So that as God comes in by the power of the Holy Spirit and gives us that new heart and begins to change us from the inside out as we cooperate with him in that process, we're told that the expulsion of sin is the act of the soul itself. And so there's definitely an individual responsibility here. But as we do so, 
Parents are taken away from being a source and they become one that we give to. Family is taken away as being a source and they become ones that we give to. Spouse is taken away as one who's a source and they become one that we give to. Friends and pets and coworkers are those that we we take away from being a, a source and they become ones that we give to. And we're left with one and only source and that is God. Why does God, why is God a jealous God? Is he a jealous God for his own sake? No. He's a jealous God for our sake. Why does he want to be the only God in our lives? Because he knows every other God is a false reality and will destroy us. If you had 99, no, 100 streams flowing into your property. Let's say you had a big property. You had a few, know, a few thousand acres, and it's at a base of a mountain, and you have, you've got 100 little streams that are coming into that property, and they all converge on the property and then go out as a river on the other end. And 99 of those streams are polluted, and one of them is pure. What's the river going to be like going down the other end? Polluted, that's right, polluted. And God knows that. He's not interested in being one of your sources. He's interested in being your only source. Because if he is only one of your sources, everything you put out the other side will be polluted. And it's only when he becomes your only source that you can expect that the stream going out the property out of the other end will be pure because all that's coming in on the top end is pure. So as the law of God is restored in our lives, God becomes the one who is upstream, others downstream. And what he says and what he desires and What he asks for is something that is preeminent in our lives and we orient ourselves after him. And what others say is only filtered, is only accepted as it agrees with him and his word. And it's accepted as coming from him through them, but it must agree with what he's already given. If they speak not according to to this word, Right to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, is because there is how much truth? No truth, right? So when you and I take from God, that taking results in the filling of the Spirit because it's the Spirit that needs love and it's that love that we come and we take from God. And that taking from God that fills the Spirit and provides exactly what the Spirit needs, but it doesn't do any good to the body yet. You know when it does good to the body? When we give it. That's right, when we give it. Because giving always becomes physical. You might give a word, but that's physical. You might give a smile, but that's physical. You might give a hug, that's physical. You might give acts of service, that's physical. The giving always becomes physical. So the taking fills the spirit with what it needs, but the giving does now to the body and gives what the body needs. So if you have a form of healing that is going to keep you focused on yourself and not be involved in giving to others, then you have a false method of healing because God's way will always involve 
giving. It's always involved giving. So ultimately, our problem is the sources we choose to take from. And as long as I live by the law of God, taking love from God and giving that love to others, I can expect that things will run well as it impacts the body. But if I start taking love from the wrong sources or keeping that love to myself, I'll eventually experience symptoms, disease, and eventually death. And when that law that governs love is broken, that's called sin. And sin is the root cause of disease. And it's interesting, when you read the Bible and it talks about being healthy, it doesn't instruct you very often to eat your greens. It instructs you to obey the law. I have a lot of texts, but I don't have a lot of time, so I'm only going to give one. Exodus 15, 26. If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. You can read over and over again through the Old Testament and the New Testament and you see that healing is predicated upon obedience, upon obeying his word, of that law being restored in our hearts. Is it, in, is it important for you to, to, to eat healthy? Absolutely. Absolutely. And to get your exercise? Yeah, and your sunshine and your fresh air and all of these different lifestyle principles? Absolutely. But you can't do all of that consistently in the old heart. Remember we asked that question, you know, how many here um, you know to do more for your health than you actually do? Right? We all raised our hands, even me. What's the gap? The old heart can't do it. It can't. That old heart cannot close the gap. It cannot obey and do all of these things because these are a part of what God would have us to do, but God is downstream in our lives. We've got the old heart, we've got others upstream, and we've got ourselves upstream too because, you know, we eat what we eat because we like it. We eat when we eat because we're hungry. We drink what we drink because, well, thank you very much, I I want to. (laughs) We don't eat what we eat because God says it's good. We don't eat when we eat because God says it's time. We don't eat when, we're not in reference to God, we're in reference to self, or in reference to others. You know, you want to go out to eat and go whatever, and you know, and we're like, oh, sure, you know? And, uh, you know, so we're self-oriented and we're others-oriented, but we're not God-oriented. We must have that new heart. And as that new heart becomes our experience, then that gap between what we know and what we do closes. So we must have that. So what do I do? What do we do about this? Well, in each of our situations, we must first come and take from God's love. Now, I'll say a preface to this is that the first move is never always ours. <laughs> is al- I should say it, is always never ours. <laughs> the first move is always God's. The first law of the Bible is in the beginning, God, right? 
He always moves first. And so if we ever come to take of God's love, it's because he has already been working in our lives. He has already been drawing us to him. He has already been sending his Holy Spirit and working on us so that we even have an interest to do so. But now that the interest is there and it's generated, what do I do? How do I respond? I must first come and take. And the taking has several different forms. One, it comes through the Holy Spirit. We're told the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And, 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 so, and so here there must be the working of the Holy Spirit. But in, in there's, there's a, a component from our standpoint, and that's, well, that's the old-fashioned stuff. You ever heard of something called prayer and scripture study? Yeah? And contemplating the life of Christ? And it's stuff that we've known for a long time. Yeah. Well, it's the old faithfuls because it's what we need, right? <clears throat> now, is prayer going to save you? No. Is reading the Bible going to save you? No. Is contemplating the life of Christ going to save you? No. But there's a law of the mind that says by beholding we become changed, right? It's just like the law of gravity that by jumping off the bridge you will fall down, <laughs> right? And when you come to a hard surface at the bottom, you will stop quickly, right? Um, <clears throat> we can expect that to be the case every time, and it's true for that law of the mind. By beholding we become changed. And so as we spend time beholding God, we cannot help but become like him because by beholding we become changed. Now, if we spend eight hours a day or 10 hours a day on TV and video games and, and uh uh, social media and, and all of these different things and these distractors. But then we come and we spend 15 minutes, 20 minutes, a half an hour in prayer and contemplating Christ's life and, and so on and so forth. Well, that law will have been working all of the 8, 10, 12 hours that we were contemplating and looking at something else, and the direction of our life is heading in the direction of the things that we've spent time with. Some people wonder, why am I not progressing in my Christian life? And, and the reality is it's because we have surrounded ourselves with everything of the world, and we've consumed the thing of the world, and we invite everything from the world into our own homes and into our own minds, and it occupies our thinking, it occupies our vision, it occupies our time, it occupies all of that kind of stuff, and then we try to counteract it all with 10 to 15 minutes of prayer and Bible study? Come on now. No way it could work. It's like, it's like asking gravity to go in one direction but then having it reverse for, you know, I mean, you're falling for 15 minutes in one direction and then you fall to the other direction, which is not the direction you want to go for the next 10 hours, you know. The whole direction of movement's going to be in the wrong way, right? It's just, it's just not going to work. So we must take that time, but in, the, in taking that time, that time has to take over everything else. <laughs> Any of you ever fell in love with anyone? I'd love to get your stories. 
that I, I, I love those stories because they're just, it, it's so, it, it's neat, it's so beautiful. See how, you know, how God worked out, um, you know, these different things. I, I fell in love too, and I, I, I remember I was at college and, and, um, <clears throat> and there was this young lady that was there. And, um, you know, I don't know, I, I, maybe I'd paid attention to her some and whatever, but one day she was walking up the stairs going to the cafeteria. And it was at Southern Adventist University, Southern College at the time. And uh, I think it was on the Jacob's Ladder side. And anyways, there are long steps and, and uh, you know, you, gotta take, you can't just do one at a time. And it's kind of odd spacing and you kind of have to change your step gate and whatever in order to hit the next one just right. And whatever. Anyways, I just remember watching her walk up to the cafeteria and the thought just struck me. I could marry her. Be careful what you think. Because I married her. And that was 20 years ago. Um, and, uh, and anyway, so, so uh, yeah. And, and, and then there's an interest that, that, that grows. And then, you know, we, we talked about the old heart and the investment and so on. So I went around the whole investment side of things and, and, uh, and so on. I would do things differently knowing things now uh, than I did then. But it was, you know, it, you spend time. You, 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 you communicate. You, you get to know the other individual. I mean, for two months, all we could do is talk about pets. After we were dating, right? And it was pets, you know? We'd talk about the pets, so she had this age or that age and whatever, and I started wondering after two months, I was like, if this is gonna stay on pets much longer, I don't know if we have much of a hope as a couple. <laughs> you know? I was really starting to wonder about that. And, sorry, honey. Um, and, uh, and, oh, but then we had this watershed conversation. And uh, I don't remember. We had driven down to Florida from Tennessee, and uh, she had some relatives a couple miles down from where I lived. And, and uh, I went to drop her off at her aunt's place, and we, ch- I don't know how the conversation came about or whatever and what we, but it was like the floodgates opened up. And it wasn't pets anymore. We were talking about family and we were talking about, you know, life and about, you know, vision and, and you know, what do we want to do in the future and what were our hopes and our desires and other things like that. And I'm just telling you my story not to give anybody an example of what to do, but, you know, at two o'clock in the morning, we realized that we were still talking. And I was like, oh, I'm in so much trouble. I know I'm in college, but I'm supposed to be home by a certain time, and my mom's going to kill me. I wasn't thinking, you know, at that time, I wasn't thinking, well, you know, it's not good to be staying up with a young woman you know, until 2 o'clock in the morning. And I, I, I didn't know, not, I, I had no clue about, I, I had no clue about courting or any principles of courting. I, all I knew was dating. Um, at the time. So I'm just telling you my story, not as an example of what to do. But, oh boy, after that watershed, oh, and we could talk, and we could communicate, and, and, and we could share, and oh, we just, oh, we spent time, and, and I mean, I made all sorts of time to spend time, so that I could get to know her more, and the more I got to know her, the more beautiful that it was, and, and it was just wonderful. You ever been there? Yeah. That's what it's like here too, 
right? <clears throat> Sometimes it takes time to break through that to that watershed moment. Sometimes, you know, you, you know that you want to get to know them, but it seems a little difficult to get to know them. You know, it's like in this situation, it's almost like having a, 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 a dumb partner. They, can, they can't speak, you know? So you're doing a lot of monologues at the beginning. Ever been there? You know, prayer seems like a monologue and you're just talking to yourself sometimes. Right? <clears throat> Sometimes it seems like that. But just go through the monologue anyways. Keep talking to them. Just keep going there. Because you're eventually going to hit the watershed. And it's just going to break loose. And you have that conversation with him. And you get done with it. And even though you were the only one, or the only voice that you actually heard you realize you actually had a two-way conversation. And you walk away from it just like, wow, oh, that's awesome. And then, of course, there's the other side and the reading side, the promises of God's word. I mean, <clears throat> one, of the different, one of the things that changed after my conversion was how I prayed, and praise God, it changed, because then before that, oh, boy, I had horrible prayers. And it, ever defeated yourself in prayer? I used to do it all the time. Right? Remember that law, by beholding you become changed? Well, if your prayer time is like, oh God, I'm so horrible, and oh God, I've done this again, and oh God, I don't know how I'm gonna overcome, and oh, I just keep doing this over and over again, and I don't know why you keep putting up with me, and I'm such a this and such a that, and the other thing, and, and oh God, just help me and then walk away from that. Well, by beholding you become changed, right? So even during prayer, you're becoming more like the problem. Because all you're doing is looking at the problem. And that was my prayer life before conversion. But, oh, the Lord, praise God, he is, so gen- he is so gracious to us. And he began to reveal to me his word and the preciousness of his word and to bring me out of the darkness because of that word. And, and so now my prayers reflect the word of God. And so when I pray, I pray God's word. You know, I, I, I come before him, and Psalm 103 is one of the ones that I love, and I, you know, and I come to him in the mornings, <laughs> praise the Lord, you know, and, uh, and, and I lift him up in, in Psalms 103, and I get to that beautiful section, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. You know, Lord, I'm tired, but you said, come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am humble and gentle in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Thank you, Lord, for lightening my burden as, even as I take up your yoke today. And your promises are true. And, and, and God, I don't know about this, but you said I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And if that wasn't enough, you said for, for he who spared not his own son but delivered him up for, for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Oh, Lord, thank you. And I sure blew it over here, but you said, if I confess my sin, you are faithful and just to forgive me of my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. 
And so, Lord, thank you for that cleansing. And I need your Holy Spirit, and you said that you are more willing to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask than our parents to give the good gifts to their children. And I know, Lord, I love giving good gifts to my children, and so it must be so much nicer for you. And so give me that Holy Spirit. And, and that mind that was in Christ, Lord, let it be in me as well. <clears throat> and create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Right? I, I, I pray to God his word. And, and, in, and in doing so, it, it becomes real, and it's a conversation with him. And it's, and it's close, and it's intimate, and it's, it's beautiful. Right? Take that time and come and take from God's love. What do we do as well? We have to accept a new heart, a new love. Ever watched uh, open heart surgery? Yeah? Yeah, on video, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, It's it's less smelly that way. Less bloody that way, too. Um, Yeah, I... Cardio, cardiothoracic surgery rotations at uh, La Melinda University. It's very interesting. You, you know, surgeons are very, um, very interesting creatures. Um, even amongst physicians, we recognize that surgeons are very interesting creatures. Uh, they tend to be the, the, the gods of medicine. Um, and uh, they think they're the gods of medicine, too. And that's the problem. Is, uh, <clears throat> and... Uh, Anyway, so <laughs> so surgeons, usually when they develop an instrument that you can be used in surgery for a particular procedure, you know what they do to the instrument? They give it a name, right? And so it gets patented with a name. Whose name do they put on it? Their own name, right? Of course, that's just how it's done. Now, since the pattern is in place, then other really nice, godly people sometimes follow that pattern too. And so uh, one day I was in surgery with Leonard Bailey. And, you know, baby Faye and the heart transplant and all that kind of stuff and whatever. And so we're there in surgery and, and he's doing surgery and, you know, this stuff. And he says, please pass the Bailey. I'm like, oh, that's just so weird. He's there and he's asking for himself. <laughs> you know, um, but, but by the way, Leonard Bailey, he did not have the God complex. He was, he was very, he was gracious and gentle and, and so on and so forth, and, and it was really cool. But um, you can get pretty bloody because I got a bloodbath once in, in uh, <clears throat> open heart surgery when they cannulated the aorta and didn't actually get things clamped off quite right. Um, but uh, open heart surgery, it's not a painless procedure, Right? Um, and you don't want to go through that, especially a heart transplant, you, you don't want to go through that if things can be fixed other ways. So if you are going to undergo a heart transplant and get a new heart, well, you have to have an incurable heart condition. Now, what did I do? I pulled that out, I guess, slightly. You have to have an incurable heart condition, right? If your condition is curable in any other way, any other means other than surgery and replacing the heart, then you are not a candidate for heart transplant. You're not. If we can fix it with medication, if we can, we can do other things like that and keep it under control and so on and so forth, you are not a candidate for a heart transplant. Similarly, If you think your heart is good enough to just get you along, 
you're not a candidate for heart transplant. You must realize that you have an incurable heart condition and it will kill you. It will kill you. It's fatal. <clears throat> also, if you're going to go through this procedure, you have to trust the surgeon and give them consent. Right? You got to give them consent. Surgeon's not going to take you through surgery without your consent. And in giving the consent, it implies that you trust the surgeon to be able to do it. Now, you know, if you walk up to somebody and they say, well, hey, I'll do the heart transplant for you, a good question to ask is, how many have you done? He says, well, you know, I watched it on YouTube. <clears throat> Haven't actually done one yet. Well, yeah. Next. All right. Second opinion, third opinion, fourth opinion. Um, you must trust the surgeon, but the surgeon here has done many heart transplant surgeries and is very adept at what he does and has never lost a case, right? Has never lost a case. But you must give him consent anyways. And you must be willing to go through the pain. You might be thinking, well, there's anesthesia. Yeah, there is anesthesia, that's true. But guess what? Anesthesia stops at some point. And unless you, you know, unless you weren't aware, open heart surgery is a slightly painful process. Slightly. You know what they do, right? Yeah. Sharp knife, scalpel, and they cut right down here, down the middle, right, just below the breastbone. And then, you know, that's the easy stuff. Then they get a saw. And then they go, and then they pull that out. And then they get some rib spreaders in there, and they put one on one side and one on the other, and then they crank it. And the chest goes, like that. So you can get big, you know, wide enough in order to be able to get in there and work and so on. And you, you see the lungs inflating and, you know, so you've got to move that left lung over a little bit so you can see there's some movement back in there. And then you've got to get a little knife and then scissors and you cut that pericardial sac around from the heart and then you deliver the heart from the pericardium and there it is. Oh, that lovely heart. It's beating and it's, and it's doing its work and and, uh, you know, you go through the whole procedure, and then when it's done, everything goes in reverse, you know. You've got to put the heart back in, get that pericardium back together, make sure the lungs lie nice and right and everything, pull the rib spreaders out, and then, you know, pull them out and so on. But now the, the, the breastbone, the sternum, is not together anymore. So how do you put the breastbone together? Yeah, a big suture and, instead of, and a big needle, right? But instead of having thread on the other end, it's wire. And so you put the big needle through the bone and on one side, and you put it through the bone on the other side, and then you get the wire, and you clip it, and you get pliers, and you twisty-tie the breastbone together. And then you get the end of the wires, and you bend them down into the bone so that they're not sticking out of the skin. And you do that several times in order to hold that breastbone together. And then you get the surface and you get staples and you staple, 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 staple with a couple of drains right down here so that all the extra fluid can drain out for a few days. And then you get to wake up. Oh. You know what people complain about and they don't realize? Is they have tons of back pain when they wake up. You know why they have back pain? 
Yeah, because of spreading the ribs. Where are the ribs attached? To the back, right? And the, the ribs have never spread that far before. And so you have all of this disruption that's going on in the soft tissues back here in the back where the ribs are at. And some, they wake up and, oh, their back is killing them because that whole rib spreader and everything that was going on. And they, you have pain, and then you get done with it, and you, you know, then they, they make you start going through deep breathing exercises. And you've got to breathe deep because you don't want to develop pneumonia and so on. And, oh, but when you do, then your chest has to move. And those twisty ties don't hold the sternum together very well, and so it kind of slips a little bit. It's like, and then you have to cough. Oh. And so they give you this pillow that looks like a heart so that you can hold on to it, and you go. And please, I will give you this advice. If you're a friend that goes to meet, you know, and see somebody in the hospital that has, that has open heart surgery, do not tell jokes. Do not tell jokes and make them laugh because that's just going to hurt. They're, they can't help but laugh, but then they're... <laughs> right? Don't do that. You must be willing to go through the pain. It's a painful process to receive the new heart. There's humility that's involved in it. There's confession that's involved in it. There's all these sorts of things that, that, that self has to get laid in the dust, as Frank mentioned that. And that is painful to, to self for that to happen. But we must be willing to go through that process in order to receive the new heart. There must be a donor with a good heart. If the donor has just the same bad heart as you do, no use going through the procedure. It's got to be one with a good heart. So God looked all over and he couldn't find another human for it and so he said, okay, me, me. What has to happen to the donor? Yeah. So when he said me, he knew the donor must die. The donor must die in order to give away that heart. <clears throat> But what we don't realize is that in heart transplant, the recipient must die too and then be revived. Because I have, they do not put the new heart in before they take the old heart out. The old heart is cut out first and then the new heart is put in. And it's nerve wracking um, <clears throat> when you're there and you get done with the procedure and everything's put back together. And, I, you know, I've been there. And, the <laughs> and, uh, and it's nerve-wracking because when everything's all hooked back together and they pull them off the bypass machine and everything, the heart is not beating. It's not beating. It hasn't been beating for quite a while. It's been out of the other person's chest and, and so on. It's not beating. And so they get these little paddles, not the big ones that you, you know, shock from the outside because you get directly to the heart. They got these little paddles on, on handles and they put them on there and then they go poof shock the heart and you wait shock it again and you wait and it starts you know you start sweating a little more in there even though it's a cold room shock it again wait surgeon reaches in there and, and massages the heart and makes it pump a bit by doing that a few times and then they get the paddles again and shock and eventually you see this kind of quiver and then and you see that oh, everybody breathes a sigh of relief, right? <clears throat> the recipient must die too and be revived. And so to receive the new heart, you must be willing to die as well. 
And finally, <clears throat> the recipient must follow the surgeon's instructions for the rest of your life. Because you're not going around with your own heart anymore. You're going around with his. And he knows how it needs to be taken care of in order for you to have a successful heart transplant that keeps you alive. <clears throat> right. Last point, and I'm just going to make it very briefly, and then we will go on to the next, well, we'll pray, and then have our next session. That is, I need to accept the divine exchange at the cross, right? I must come to the cross, and I must accept that divine exchange that we talked about yesterday. Life for life, past for past, history for history, where Jesus steps into my place, takes my sin and my penalty and everything with it, and in the place, he gives me the perfection of his life and everything that his life deserves. And I go free from the, being the perpetrator, free from being the victim, free from all of the feelings and the responses that go along with that. I must accept that divine exchange at the cross. And tomorrow, <clears throat> we will start with step number four, which is we must get into the wheelbarrow. What does that mean? I'll find out tomorrow. Let's pray. <laughs> Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your abundant blessings. <laughs> you are a great God. We thank you for that. And uh, Lord, we see that in your law, there's a beautiful love. It reveals such a beautiful love, and, and we can see how our lives have been so messed up, just so messed up. We take things so personally, and, and our cups get spilled over, and we blame others for what comes out. Lord, help us to see that what's inside comes out, and may we just pay attention to our own stuff. And with you, and the power of your grace, seek to, re, to um, be restored, to surrender depend upon you and for our lives to be changed in the likeness of Christ. And may we spend that time with you in prayer and reading your word and contemplation of your life. May we cut out those other idols, those distractors that lead us in the opposite direction. Uh, Lord, may we accept that new heart with all that it entails for we see that there is no other way, for our condition is terminal, and we must have that heart. And then, Lord, let we, may we, at the foot of the cross, lay down each and every burden, that we may be transformed by your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.